Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We come this morning asking that you would make us hungry for this heavenly food. That it might nourish us today in the ways of the kingdom and the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. We may remember when we left off back in late November in our study of Matthew, we covered the first four chapters. And at this point in Matthew's gospel, toward the end of chapter four, he is now focusing on Christ as he moves into his public ministry, which covers the last three years of his life. So the far bulk of Matthew, in fact, the bulk of all the gospels focuses on those last three years and then particularly the last week of Jesus's life. And at this point in chapter 5, he has now amassed great crowds. And in chapter 5, Matthew presents to us the first major teaching block of the gospel. So now that all the pieces are in place, the public ministry has started, Jesus is now launching his public teaching ministry. And it should not surprise us, I don't think, that the first subject he takes up in Matthew's gospel is what does kingdom life look like? The first four chapters have been establishing that the kingdom of God is now here with the arrival of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. And so it naturally leads to the question, well, what does kingdom life look like? What does it look like to be a citizen of this kingdom that Jesus has brought in? And I just want to make two major points this morning as we begin to look at this. The first is Jesus is the fullness of the Old Testament. And the second is Jesus is the fullness of blessing. Let's look at the first one. Jesus is the fullness of the Old Testament. You may remember if you were with us in December, we spent a few weeks looking at the book of Hebrews. And a major theme of the book of Hebrews is how so many types and shadows and foreshadowings in the Old Testament are all pointing to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In particular, we looked at the Old Old Testament sacrificial system of bulls and goats and how that was a sign. It was never intended to atone for sin. It was to point to the one who did atone for sin, Jesus Christ. That's a running theme in the scriptures that ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And similarly, Matthew, if you remember, has gone to great lengths to make that same point. 
in his opening chapters to make this point that Jesus identifies with the people that Jesus came to save. And he showed this beginning with this idea that Jesus is the new Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is everything and will be everything that Israel could not be. Everywhere Israel fell, Jesus will succeed. And not only identifying him with Israel, but also identifying him with sinners. And he did this. Remember, there's a series of fulfillment formulas making the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament passage, this Old Testament passage, this Old Testament passage. But he's also been doing this by presenting Jesus as retracing, reenacting, reliving Israel's footsteps. So where Israel went, we see Jesus going. What Israel did, we see Jesus doing. Israel flees into Egypt to shelter from death. Matthew shows us Jesus fleeing into Egypt to shelter from death. Israel is redeemed and comes out of Egypt. Jesus is redeemed out of Egypt. Israel goes into 40 years of wilderness wanderings and temptations. Jesus goes into 40 days of wilderness wanderings and temptations. Israel goes through the parting of the waters. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. You see, this is very intentional over and over. Just in the first three to four chapters, Jesus identifies with Israel who he came to save. Jesus identifies more fundamentally with sinners whom he came to save. And of course, this will all culminate at the cross where Jesus, the righteous, becomes for you the unrighteous where Jesus is declared to die for our sins. And I think that's continuing here in chapter 5 this morning. I think the main point about the mountain here is its parallel to Sinai. What did Israel do after the Exodus? Moses went up to Sinai He got the law. He delivered it to the people. God has delivered you. Now this is what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. That's the message of the Old Testament Exodus. That's the message of Jesus this morning. God has delivered you. He goes up to the mountaintop as Moses' great successor, the great fulfillment of Moses. And he transmits to his disciples, he transmits to us this morning, here is the law of the kingdom. Here is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom. And I know we're all very familiar with the Beatitudes. You have these formulaic sayings, each one's in two parts. You have the first part, blessed are. And then you have the second part, theirs is or theirs shall be. That's, that's the formula. The first part is blessed are. It's a declaration of a, a spiritual blessing. And then the second part explains how those identified as having received a spiritual blessing are 
actually blessed. Now, there are nine of these if you count them down into verse 11. But most, if not all, count eight as the body of the Beatitudes. Why do we count eight Beatitudes? Well, there's a couple of reasons, but it's a literary device known as an inclusion that marks off a section. So you'll notice the very first uh, Beatitude in verse 3 ends with, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you'll notice the eighth one in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those two bookends have the same promised blessing the others are slightly different in, the, in between. So that's, that's an inclusion. Those are like bookends, parentheses. This is a, a unit, a literary unit. But I also will point out to you the first and last are in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom, whereas the others are in the future tense. They shall this, that, or the other in descriptions of the blessing. All that to say... You've got blessings here promised in the present. You've got blessings here promised in the future. And because they're tied together by these bookends as a unit, I think it's important to see that these hang together as a whole. You don't want to think of the Beatitudes as a um, buffet of options that you can, oh, I like that virtue, I like that virtue, I'll, I'll take these two, thank you. It's a portrait. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. They all hang together. They all go together. Those who possess the kingdom, those who have the great privilege and honor of being invited into the kingdom of God, will display to some degree in this life and an increasing degree in this life and to a full consummated degree when Jesus returns... All of these characteristics and all of these related blessings. That is the idea. It's a portrait of kingdom citizenship. And and Matthew, we made this point too, is very concerned with the fact that we're living in between the first coming of Christ and the future second coming of Christ. We're we're in that in-between period. We talked a lot about this during our study of the book of Revelation. What does it look like to live in that already, in the sense that Jesus has already come, the kingdom has already come, but not yet in the sense that he's coming back and this hasn't been consummated, the already not yet period of time. And I think that's exactly where these Beatitudes land. In that already not yet period of time, in this in-between last days, Some of these blessings will be fulfilled here. Some of them will be partially fulfilled. Some of them will be, all of them will be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes back. First point, Jesus is the fullness of the Old Testament. This is a parallel to Mount Sinai. Jesus is ascending to the mountain after his symbolic exodus. And he's saying, this is what kingdom life looks like. Second point, Jesus is, is the fullness of blessing. The name Beatitudes comes from the Latin word for happy. Happy or blessed. And I think that forces a couple of questions. 
Number one, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be happy? And number two, who is the one who is blessed? Well, what does it mean to be blessed? I think everybody asks that question. I think whether you are a believer or not, whether you are religious or an atheist or an agnostic, everybody wrestles with some degree with this question, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? And if you look at our culture, I think generally what our culture and the world and I think fallen human nature tells us is that happiness comes from doing things. It comes from perhaps the accumulation of wealth. It comes from the accumulation of prestige. It comes from the accumulation of possessions. It comes from beauty. It comes from popularity. It comes from esteem. It comes from success, success in our vocations, success in our home life. Success in our school life, position, status, influence, all of these things that we probably spend more time than we would care to admit pursuing in this life. The world holding them out like a little proverbial carrot on the stick. If you just catch this, you'll be happy. If you achieve this, you'll be happy. I think most of us come to find out as we live life year after year after year that the pursuit of stuff, the pursuit of status, the pursuit of these worldly type pleasures are fragile at best. You chase one carrot, you grab it, and you find out, hmm, wasn't quite the satisfaction I thought it was going to be on to the next carrot. And the assumption there built in is this idea that happiness is a subjective state. Happiness is if I can just achieve this. And yet Jesus comes along and you'll notice there's nothing subjective about the Beatitudes. It's very objective. He objectively declares this is the state of my disciples, circumstances aside, achievements aside, worldly pleasures aside, worldly pursuits aside, all external circumstances aside, the state of my disciples, regardless of how you may feel at any given moment, is you are blessed beyond belief because you are a citizen of my kingdom. This is a pronouncement. Apart from the circumstances of life, that the kingdom is yours, the earth is yours, comfort is yours, satisfaction is yours, mercy is yours. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Your heavenly reward is great. You're receiving the down payment right now. And your future for eternity is more bright than you can possibly imagine. That's a that is an objective declaration. And who's blessed in this way? 
That's what it is to be blessed. I think that's why the word blessed is better than the word happy. Happy in our culture, at least, assumes you have to meet certain criteria and circumstances. But this is a blessing that comes from God. This is a blessing that comes from God's word, God's pronouncement. But who receives it? Who is blessed in this way? Who is the recipient of blessings that come apart from circumstances? Surely it's those who are wealthy, right? Surely it's the rich. Surely it's the the kings and the kingmakers. Surely it is the media influencers. It's the ones who have stature and possessions and thousands of followers and likes and, and prestige and popularity. Surely it's the ones that are held up on a pedestal and receive rewards and accolades from our culture and are all over social media. Surely it's the ones who are the most handsome and the most fit and the prettiest. Surely it's the ones who have it all together and have been married happily for 30 years and have 2.5 children. Right? No. This is the shocking countercultural counterintuitive point that Jesus is so well known for over and over again is none of that. Everything the world tells you will make you happy, Jesus says, whoa. Let me give you another perspective. And he gives this shocking response. He says, it's not all that. It's the ones who are poor in spirit. It's the ones who mourn. It's the ones who aren't proud. It's the ones who aren't arrogant. It's the ones who are meek. It's the ones who are humble. It's the ones who are merciful and pure in heart. It's the ones who hunger and thirst and know they don't have righteousness within themselves. It's the ones who know they are broken and they're peacemakers and they're persecuted. Those are strange citizens. Those are weird citizens. But we serve a strange king, right? The servants know better than the master. Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. He preached peace. He showed mercy. He he was despised. He was rejected. He was persecuted. He was afflicted. He was delivered unto death. How do you begin to realize some of that joy now? I mean, he says in the first one and the last one, it's today. Today is yours. The kingdom is yours. And I look at folks, I talk to folks all the time who are just eaten up. I get it. By stress, by pain, by anxiety, by broken relationships, by money problems, by addiction. And you've got this culture telling you, and we tell ourselves, if I can just get past this, 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 and this, if I can fix this, fix this, fix this, and fix this, then I'll be happy. Then I will have arrived. 
If I can just overcome these things, or if I can just achieve these things, then I will have happiness. And I want to tell you this morning, you can stew on that kind of thing and you can eat yourself alive pursuing what the world tells you will make you happy. And even if you achieve it, you'll find out it's not it. It is not it. So how do we begin to realize some of this joy? I'm not talking about joy all the time. Nobody's going to be happy all the time in this life, this side of the return of Christ. If you meet somebody who's happy all the time, be suspicious. I don't trust anybody that <laughs> pretends to be happy all the time. Now, let me just give you one thing that I have found helpful over the years, and the, take it or leave it. This is an exercise that was encouraged to me years ago, and, and with practice, and I think it takes practice, I do think it's helped with this concept of blessedness apart from circumstances. And it goes like this. First of all, make a list. Make a list of the top things that you perceive are robbing you of joy. Everybody, you've got three things that come to mind. I have no doubt. And however you make lists, voice memos, type, text yourself. Y'all know I do stickies all the time. I've got stickies everywhere, bedside, table side, desk side, pulpit. Some of these stickies go back years. It's just my system. My point is, write down, make a note of a few things that you see robbing you of joy. Maybe it's something from your past. Maybe it's something in the present. Maybe it's something you want to achieve in the future that you think is robbing you of joy. Write it down and give yourself permission to set it aside. Maybe it's for one hour. Maybe it's for one day. Maybe it's for one week. You guys are so sweet to my family. We had a wonderful vacation last week. And I have a hundred sticky notes. Write it all down. I'm just, believe me, they'll be here when you get back. They'll be here in an hour. They'll be here in a day. They'll be here in a week. When you work through these, you're going to have another one. It's fine. Just give yourself permission. I know it sounds maybe a little hokey, but it works. It does for me. I'll come back to them and tell yourself, I'll come back to them. I think that's important. You're not pretending they don't exist. You're not just ignoring them. This isn't stoicism. It's just, I've got these things. They're on my mind. They're causing anxiety. I'm going to write them down, set them aside, and give my permission. I'm going to church this morning. When I'm at church, I'm not going to be at work. I have a family dinner at, at lunch today. When I go to lunch, I'm not going to be at, at work. I'm not, when I go to lunch with my family, I'm not going to be at church. I'm going to set those things aside, and I will come back to them after a defined period of time. They'll still be there and just enjoy the blessing of life. Just enjoy participating in the kingdom of God, which is here and now. Just enjoy. Maybe they're small increments. Maybe those increments get a little longer as you get older and you practice this more. Enjoy for a brief moment being a bit more what God has created you to be and the understanding that ultimately this is all going to come to full consummation and fruition and in heaven, there will be no more sticky notes.
I'm convinced. Right at the beginning, Jesus is giving us character traits. They contradict all human judgments. They contradict all worldly expectations. The kingdom is given to the poor in spirit. Not given to the Pharisees. They thought they entered the kingdom through genealogies and merit. It's not given to the zealots. They thought you entered into the kingdom by blood and sword. It's given to the poor. It's given to the needy. It's given to those who know they are broken. It's given to those who know they are so poor. They don't have anything they can offer. That's who the table is for. I'm going to ask some men to come forward and prepare the table.